Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 268 Meditating with God. In this episode, we're joined by Christian teacher and author David Frenette to speak about his experience of Zen, centering prayer, and the Christian path of contemplation. This is part one of a two part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm delighted to be joined today by a special guest. I'm here with David Frenette. David is a senior teacher in the Centering Prayer Movement, which is a contemplative Christian tradition. Um, He's also the spiritual director at the Center for Contemplative Living in Denver, just down the road. And he's also the author of a newly released book called The Path of Centering Prayer, Deepening Your Experience of God. And I've just dropped the G word in, and we'll we'll definitely explore that together. Um, but first, I wanted to start um, just by asking a question about kind of your history with contemplative practice. We were speaking a few years ago, and you described this conversion experience that you had um, into the contemplative Christian tradition. What was so interesting to me, it was a conversion from Zen practice. So it's usually the opposite for most people that get into Buddhism. They've sort of gone away from their Christian roots and found this thing that's like very different, you know, from their uh, tradition. And you had the sort of opposite of experience. So I was hoping you could kind of bring us back to the beginning uh, in your first kind of introduction to practice and then talk a little bit as well about this experience you had of switching uh, from Zen to the contemplative Christian practice. Yes, Vince, it's so good to be with you finally after all these years. Um, I wasn't raised a Christian. I didn't really have any religious uh, training as a young person and then began to get interested, very interested in in meditation and the meaning of life and searching for my own answers um, to suffering, to my suffering. And, uh, of course, drifted naturally into meditation practice, Hindu, Buddhist practice, when I was uh, in my late teens and uh, connected in a profound way with Zen practice, particularly the Soto Zen practice, not koan practice, but Soto Zen practice. And I moved to uh, the Bay Area to practice with the uh, Sangha that uh, Suzuki Roshi established in uh, San Francisco and uh, and uh, Green Gulch Farm and then Tassajara and in Berkeley, where there was a smaller Zendo, where I kind of settled, I like Berkeley. And, uh, and really got seriously into practice then after, you know, I had graduated from college and, and, and uh, was doing daily practice and then also uh, uh, sashin, uh, periodic sashin, and, and deepening into uh, an experience of, of uh, Zen, the shunyata or emptiness. And periodically out of that emptiness, there arose something which wasn't talked about much or at all, really, in Zen practice. And that was uh, kind of a fullness or, or a sense of loving transcendence that came into my heart and being and into me and around me and through me and, and kind of knocked me off my cushion a couple of times, actually. Uh, and uh, really kind of 
uh, deepen my uh, uh, practice itself. In other words, uh, in other words, this periodic touch of what I called uh, into myself, kind of like a divine love. It wasn't happening in a in an ashram, in a Hindu ashram, which sometimes uses that God word or the divine language. It was happening in my Zen practice when I was going deeply into into the present moment and and uh, was being touched by this kind of uh, experience, which I didn't understand. Actually, it was rather confusing. Not when it was going on. It was just a sense of uh, deep, empty bliss and presence. But afterwards, I didn't know what to make of it. Cool. So I'm, I'm curious um, what you ended up doing with that, because clearly you found the need to kind of look elsewhere than in the Zen tradition. Could you take us through kind of that experience? What happened? How did you find out about the contemplative Christian path? And and how did you discover that it was sort of more uh, maybe helpful in terms of describing what you're experiencing? Well, I want to say uh, first, I think that for me somehow, and I'm not sure why, um, my particular path in life, in this life, is a, a Christian contemplative path. And that the early Zen training uh, was profound, profound for me uh, for three or four years. And it helped me discover or be discovered by my true path. But yes, I didn't understand what was going on. I, I really didn't. I I searched around for someone who could explain it to me. And, and of course, the Christian contemplative path is rather hidden. Certainly was 30 years ago. Uh, now there's more evident through the work of Centering Prayer and other great teachings. But at that time, there wasn't much uh, known about the Christian contemplative path or the path of practice outside monasteries. And I went to a few monasteries, and I, but I also was just doing my ordinary practice. And so I connected with a great writer, Christian contemplative writer, Thomas Merton, uh, who, was, uh, who had been dead for about 10 or 12 years by then. Uh, this is like around 1980 or 1981. And uh, his books were just amazing to me because he wrote everything with a very deep personal flavor of his life as a monk, as a contemplative monk. And, and he was very articulate and he'd be able to describe the kind of experience I was, I was having. And he had a great uh, dialogue with great uh, Buddhist teachers too, and he lived a wild life before he became a monk, and was you know art, artistic and traveled around the world. So I had a lot of personal connections with him. So so I I pursued this and uh, tried to deepen my understanding, and I eventually became uh, a Christian, you know, because it was my response to this mystery uh, that arose out of emptiness into fullness and into presence and kind of invited something from me. My response was to become a, a Christian and to affirm that for some reason this is my path in life. I've always had a great respect for for Buddhism and a great love for Buddhism too, and uh, you know, all the geeks in the world. <laughs> but uh, but uh, I, it was a sense of conversion, but the idea of conversion is not, not a single, like, you know, in the fundamentalist Christian idea, like a born again experience, but but it's like an awakening into into a mystery that can't be uh, conscribed by words or or terms or ideas, and it's meant to be a lifetime practice of conversion and reconversion and awakening and reawakening that's uh, facilitated by deep contemplative practice. So yeah, I became a Christian and settled into my path, and then a few years later, met. Uh, a great teacher who helped me on that path, 
Merton was a teacher in the first years through his books, but then I met, you know, a great, uh, a, a real live Christian master. So, I, one, I'd be curious to hear about this real life Christian master. And then, two, um, I remember you talking a bit about spending 10 or so years living in a monastery in upstate New York where you, I'm imagining, kind of went deeper with the Christian path and the practices. So, I'd be curious to hear one about the teachers that you've worked with uh, and kind of how that all works in the Christian tradition. And then, two, um, to hear about your time kind of spent doing intensive training. Like, what kinds of things did you. Uh, learn from that experience or what what sort of things occurred, I guess, in the process? Uh, Well, my uh, spiritual father is Thomas Keating. He's a Trappist monk and priest, uh, a monk in the same uh, tradition as Thomas Merton. And I met him in Berkeley. He came to the uh, uh, Vedanta Society, actually, little Vedanta Center to give a talk. And I went there and I heard this master. I thought, oh my God, this is a real Christian teacher because there's not many of them. Uh, and and I wrote him a letter afterwards and I asked him for some help. I was thinking about becoming a monk. But in the Christian tradition, if you become a monk, it's the with the idea of living forever in the monastery, in a cloister, a uh, contemplative monk away from the world. And I felt drawn to intensive practice, but I didn't really feel drawn to that. Uh, kind of permanent separation from the world because even then I somehow intuited that the fullness of practice is to integrate uh, the experience that's uh, arising in practice with all of form and all of life and all of experience. Um, But I did feel called to at least explore the monastery and he helped me with that. He kind of actually encouraged me to take it very slow because I was like 25 years old or something. Um, and he invited me to come on an intensive retreat that he was given, um, a two-week uh, retreat at the Lama Foundation, this interspiritual community uh, near Taos, New Mexico. And he invited just 12 people there. I wanted to have a little small group. He had been teaching Centering Prayer, which is a Christian meditation practice, in the monastery to his monks. But this is the first retreat that he wanted to offer to people who were not monks, but serious practitioners of the Christian path. So I went on that uh, two-week retreat, and it was it was profound. You know, here he was uh, teaching in the style of a Christian spiritual father, an Abba. The Abbas uh, and the Amas, the mothers and the and the fathers, are a tradition that goes back in Christianity to the third, fourth century. The desert fathers and the desert mothers were the first. Uh, uh, teachers and masters of the Christian life who articulated their ways of practice of meditation, wrote it down, transferred the oral tradition that had been given them into some written forms and developed little communities. And they worked intimately with people and oftentimes by virtue of their own practice and their own prayer, they could create uh, kind of an openness in the student's mind to to experience God, uh, if we can use that term. Here, please. <laughs> uh, the mystery that's beyond form and image, <laughs> but is given the name God in the Christian tradition. So Thomas Keating taught in that style, especially coming through you know all these years in the monastery, being an abbot and and a, and a spiritual recognized spiritual master. And on that two week retreat, my practice deepened. He not only described what had been happening to me in the last you know, six or seven years in terms of awakening to uh, 
to Christ and also uh, giving my life to that reality in terms of practice and surrender. But also the retreat, something about the retreat, it was the right conditions for my experience to go deeper into into a kind of meditation that really opened up for me over the years. Uh, So it was a watershed experience for me and for him because, because it was the time when he brought his teachings out of the monastery into the world, encountering people who are not monks, as I was saying, and he, and he, and this basic teachings on this practice of centering prayer kind of solidified there, and began to take shape and form, and and uh, his organization of spiritual practitioners was really uh, germinated or seeded at that time. Of those twelve people who were on that retreat, uh, more than half of them ended up dedicating their lives. Uh, to uh, to the work of centering prayer and to being his um, serious students and followers and practitioners. Sounds like a pretty awesome retreat. <laughs> it was. It was great. It was called an intensive retreat, and it was intense. You know, as uh, and it was structured. He had been giving uh, retreats like this, and had been on some uh, Zen retreats too. His uh, a teacher that he invited many times to his monastery in Massachusetts. Uh, Sasaki Roshi uh, was a great friend of his, and uh, and and uh, he had given the monks, the Trappist monks, a num- I think a, a, a retreat one session a year for years, and so Father Thomas Keating kind of was very familiar with that style of practice, and and his encounter with Zen and uh, and other great uh, you know Buddhist and Hindu teachings and uh, Jewish. Uh, mystical teachings, kind of served as a mirror for him uh, to see more clearly and deeply into his own tradition, into Christian uh, tradition to articulate and bring forth this practice of centering prayer, which has its roots uh, in the Christian uh, uh, teachings of the Desert Fathers and the Desert Mothers and the monastic movement that developed from them and all these great teachings throughout the centuries, but had been kind of locked away in the monasteries. So it needed to be reanimated and brought forth for people who, uh, who live now in contemporary society or who lived and can live in the society three decades ago because things have changed so much in three decades. But Centering Prayer has been a wonderful tool for, for real people who are somehow drawn to that Christian path um, and uh, need some skillful means to pursue it in their ordinary lives. And then from there, you ended up spending some more intensive time practicing, going deeper with the path. I'm curious to hear a little bit about that period and what it was like for you. Yes, after that retreat, I went home to Berkeley and... uh, and uh, ended up going on an intensive period of, of meditation there in my little studio apartment. Um, I was working as a janitor because Thomas Merton said once uh, that if if he lived in the world outside the monastery, uh, he would want to be a janitor so he could devote his life to practice. Now, so I took that seriously. <laughs> my parents weren't that happy with it, especially because I had just gotten out of school a couple of years before and I was going to get my PhD. And <laughs> so anyways, I, I devoted my, my more and more of my day to practice, and I ended up doing a lot of meditation each day, um, partially because of the things that had opened up on that meditation retreat. And at the same time, a, a few people that, who were on that retreat, the other 12 people, 
other 11 people, were talking about forming some kind of a community to support Thomas Keating's teachings, uh, a retreat community. And, uh, and so I kind of threw my hat in with them. And we developed this community first near uh, Thomas Keating's monastery in Snowmass, Colorado. We had like nine months there renting a place and, and working on the retreats that he was just developing based on that prototype that he had taught a little while before. And then uh, in New York State, we moved, a few of us moved to New York State, upstate about two hours from New York City in Connecticut, and then later in uh, Orange County, uh, New York and uh, had this little retreat center. It could take about 25 people on retreat and, and about uh, three to five residents, uh, meaning people, those of us who committed to the community with this idea of living a very serious life of practice without that permanent vow. But we did take uh, commitments, and in Christian tradition, the commitments are to, uh, to live simply and to be under obedience and to uh, be celibate. And uh, and to live that out for a set period of time, and you know, those, so those are like monastic uh, commitments, but it wasn't a permanent vowed life. And I was there for ten years, uh, learning about service and and about uh, contemplative practice with this group, and kind of running the place after a while. But also the idea is that uh, you know, with those external commitments, it creates an environment for to go deeper into one's own practice. Um, so the idea is to is not to just live out these empty commitments or vows, but to to be in a container so that one can practice without distraction and 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 be trained. And and uh, I was in the remedial course. I mean, people were there for a couple of years. I stayed there for ten years because I really wanted to to um, to serve the community and and uh, you know to try to help it develop over time. Um, so and day to day, we we got up at like at four thirty in the morning and uh, gathered for a few hours of meditation each day and in common and then in private. And then at 9 o'clock, uh, we'd start our work day uh, in silence, taking care of the place, taking care of guests, doing some teachings, whatever was going on. Uh, we'd have meditation at noon for another hour and then uh, lunch in common. Uh, that was the only time we really talked much during the day. And then go back to work in the afternoon, and then at five thirty at night we do have another hour of meditation, and then solitude at night and some work, and uh, and uh, you know, and that was a time to do private practice. And then we take one day off a week. We got paid a hundred dollars a month, uh, a little stipend, and I'd take the bus into New York. <laughs> <laughs> I love New York, and uh, we'd just walk around. I didn't have much money to do anything; just pay for the bus and have lunch uh, at the Indian restaurants down on uh, in the village. But I'd uh, you know walk around, and 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 my practice at that time was to integrate the the silent meditation that we were doing the other six days of the week with a very you know intense life of Manhattan, where I could where I could experience the uh, the divine too, uh, breaking forth. In the in, in the creativity and the culture and the craziness and the noise of Manhattan and and all of New York, but I could only really experience that because the other six days of the week I had this, you know, training in 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 opening up and consenting and resting in the ground of being from which all activity and all noise and all creativity and all culture arise. So uh, it was a nice balance for me. And then after ten years, I said, well, I'm gonna see about a little change of life and, and uh, ended up, you know, living more uh, 
of an active life in the world after that time. But it was a really good training ground. And I actually hope that we could set something up again for young people who might feel called to do that. That place closed uh, shortly after I had uh, moved on back to come back west to Colorado. Uh, but I still think there's a need for that kind of uh, training uh, a center, uh, and not necessarily for people to be in it for a long time, for 10 years, but for a period of time where they can go deeply into practice with the idea from the start that the practice is about integrating and experiencing and expressing uh, the life of God in all things. Um, I think that's a great uh, horizon or, or threshold or, or future project for the Christian meditation tradition, which is developing in new ways. Nice. So um, maybe shifting gears just a little bit, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the book that you've written, uh, The Path of Centering Prayer. So wondered if you could talk a little bit about the practice of centering prayer and in particular, what is it in terms of practical terms? Like you mentioned it's a meditation method. How does it work? And then uh, are there any sort of basic ideas that come with this practice that are crucial to understanding what, what it's doing. So centering prayer is a, is a, is a simple practice in, in the beginnings of its, uh, uh, of its uh, practice, actually. So uh, based on the teachings of a, of a medieval Christian classic called the Cloud of Unknowing, which kind of updated the teachings of the Desert Fathers and the Desert Mothers for that era, in England and Europe, the centering prayer is all about consenting and saying yes to a mystery that cannot be conceived of in words. And and the problem that we have, according to the teachings of this medieval classic called the cloud of unknowing and to centering prayer, is that we're attached to our thoughts and emotions and our words and our ideas. So the idea is to let go of the thinking process for a while and open up to uh, the mystery of God, which is, as the cloud said, God is a mystery who can well be loved but not thought. Uh, and that's really the Christian contemplative understanding. Contemplation in the Christian tradition doesn't mean thinking or contemplating about uh, spiritual truths, but experiencing them beyond thought. So centering prayer, you have a, a word of one or two syllables. This is the teaching of the cloud of unknowing for the Middle Ages, or the breath, or a simple inward turning, the glance, or some other kind of symbol of yes that's not conceptual, but just represents one's openness. And then whenever you're engaged with a thought, you turn ever so gently to that word, that symbol, that breath, and, and open to God. And there's a lot of turning, there's a lot of practice, there's a lot of letting go involved in it, as there is in many practices, but it opens up to, at some point, this, this experience where you let go, one let, lets go of the symbol, the word, the breath, whatever, and just rests in openness. And that, in Christianity, is called pure contemplation, or contemplation itself. So, for those you know who are familiar with uh, other forms of meditation, like I said, I was trained early on in Soto Zen practice, in Soto Zen practice, as I learned it, not koan practice, but sitting practice, there's the basic form of the practice where one counts the breath 
And if one is focused, like I usually got up to 10, sometimes I get lost along the way, and then you start over again. And then at some point, after a lot of practice, there's uh, just the experience of, of just sitting, or shikantaza in Japanese, just sitting, without holding on to any form, without counting the breath, or without doing anything in the posture. And so to Zen practice is very important to just sit and just be in solidarity and oneness with the posture and everything like it. So in Centering Prayer, there's that similar form. There's the basic introductory practice, and it has the word or the breath to settle the mind and then open up to the mystery of God. And then there's the contemplation itself, pure contemplation, just being and resting and opening in God. The God that may well be loved but not thought. Love not as an emotion but as a stance of consent and being. And then the mystery of love, which is the Christian understanding of what ultimate mystery is, um, awakens more and more as the, as the depths of one's own existence, not as a separate entity from oneself, but as the ground of one's own being. Um, and then this book, uh, The Path of Centering Prayer, Deepening Your Experience of God, it goes into different instructions and dispositions to provide some kind of assistance for the practitioner who is interested in this path, and especially the way that the path changes over time. Uh, because the experience of God for a Christian practitioner often becomes less dualistic and more about a oneness and immediacy. And so they need to, you know, they benefit, benefit from understanding how that works in their own practice and how to deal with it. Otherwise, they tend to, one can get to kind of trapped and looking for an old experience of, of God when God is everything that is rather than just one little idea or one thought. So the book is meant to affirm the basic teachings of Centering Prayer for younger people who may not have connected with it fully from Thomas Keating's books or one of the other great writers on Centering Prayer but also provide some instruction for the deepening practitioner. And some of those instructions are really also, uh, we found uh, people from other traditions sometimes find value in them. For example, these attitudes and dispositions of gentleness and effortlessness, which are key to the deepening of centering prayer as it moves into pure contemplation. But it's also valuable for people who are drawn to any kind of deep meditative path when you let go of the form of the practice. That could be Mahamudra or Dzogchen or some forms of Advaitic Hindu experience um, and into just being, just being with everything that is. In Christian language, everything is in God and God is in all things. Uh, everything lives and moves and have its, has its being in God, is one part of the Christian scriptures uh, say. So that practice is just to consent to that mystery, have a little form and structure to settle the mind, and, and, uh, and then just be in it, in uh, sitting meditation and then in more and more of life. And then I understand that in addition to teaching Centering Prayer, you've also been teaching and developing um, other kind of ways of practicing. And I'd be curious to hear about some of the stuff that's kind of uh, emerging for you in terms of how you're teaching or things that have emerged that are kind of uh, new, new additions to the, to the contemplative uh, tradition or maybe uh, new re-additions to the tradition. 
Well, going back to that uh, early experience I had when I was in my late 20s and 30s at that retreat center, uh, one of the great things about that retreat center in New York State was that we provided retreats for people for the weekend or 10 days or longer. And then, you know, people who came and committed to the lifestyle could get this intensive training. But also it turned out to be something of a laboratory where where the core community, uh, five of us and then some others that were living full time there, could could look deeply at the needs of the people who were coming to us for spiritual practice and, and under Thomas Keating's guidance. Uh, he didn't live there. He came by every six weeks or so for a couple of days and uh, gave us a little bit of guidance. And under his guidance, we started to develop materials and practices that would help the Centering Prayer people integrate their experience into life, like deal with emotions and exper- and thoughts and outside the time of practice. So that's been an enduring uh, interest of me, for of, of mine over the years. Uh, the idea of a, of, a, of a tradition, I think, is that it develops and changes according to the changing needs and social circumstances of, it, of a contemporary society. And this has always happened in the Christian contemplative experience, the Desert Fathers and the Desert Mothers. They developed teachings based on what they had experienced of Christ and his message and his resurrected presence for the circumstances of their times. And so, too, in the cloud of a knowing uh, was a new re-expression of the earlier tradition that goes back to Jesus, refined by the desert mothers and fathers, and uh, and then taught uh, for the needs of that time. And this time in our, in our world now, it's such a rapidly changing, crazy world that I find that even those teachings that were developed 30 years ago at this retreat center, along with Thomas Keating's basic uh, and very profound instruction on centering prayer, uh, are sometimes not enough, not enough especially for young people and sometimes not enough for people who are living in the world. Um, so so recently we've been uh, looking not only at the material that's in this book, The Path of Centering Prayer, to help the deepening of that practice, but also about how to live with with more presence and attention, sacred attentiveness in daily life, so that the experience that's opened up in centering prayer is then stabilized in the rest of life. So, for example, uh, teaching here in Boulder and then at the Garrison Institute, we teach a retreat there every March for the last year's uh, seven-day or eight-day retreat, and we're going to be doing a new retreat on, on, it's kind of like mindfulness with devotion, (laughs) in terms of what a Buddhist practitioner might understand, or we might call it heartfulness in the Christian understanding, or sacred awareness. Um, to complement centering prayer uh, and bring its effects into more and more of life. So it involves being present with sacred attention and uh, presence uh, to what's whatever is going on in one's body and one's uh, daily life. And there's a bridge created, therefore, for greater psychological healing um, with emotions and tra- traumatic experiences and then also uh, with living with uh, greater uh, sacred attention in daily life. And this is actually a, 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 a traditional understanding in the Christian contemplative tradition. One of the great uh, teachers, uh, Brother Lawrence of the Re- Resurrection from centuries ago, talked about practicing the presence of God. So the Christian idea would be that the same God who's there in sitting practice, uh, without form, without image, 
but with a loving presence that transforms one's consciousness, is there in life too, and and the idea, just as would one would do with Buddhist mindfulness practice, is to bring attention to it through the body, through the emotion, through the breath, and have that um, permeate more and more of one's consciousness. The difference between uh, perhaps Buddhist mindfulness practice and this approach is that one experiences the source of all of life as God, and then there's a sense of connection or devotion to that reality. That's why I sometimes call this heartfulness rather than mindfulness. Um, And the heartful connection with God then uh, begins to transform the ordinary moment so that one even loses the awareness of God as an object, and then God becomes the subject of one's consciousness itself, and then life is uh, transformed into what another great Christian teacher from uh, four centuries ago called the sacrament of the present moment. This great French uh, contemplative uh, Jean-Pierre Ducousseau said that every point of existence, every moment of existence is infused with uh, sacredness because it is ordinary because it is a sacrament, meaning it's infused with God's presence, but not in a special way, just because it's ordinary. So all I have to do is just let go of trying to make things special (laughs) and experience the radiant, ordinary wonder of every moment of time through heartful, present awareness. So that's one example. And then there's another practice of meditative inquiry, which we want to develop because I think many modern or contemporary people, because we're being inundated with so many kind of messages and beliefs and unconscious values um, thrown at us in our highly technological age, um, find it valuable to come back to uh, inquire and affirm what's really happening in one's own experience from the perspective of one's spiritual path and to bring that forth. Otherwise, the mind is just conditioned and programmed by other values and beliefs. So there's there's this whole uh, kind of smorgasbord of, of uh, auxiliary practices that are very important for someone who's really deeply committed to the path. Centering prayer is wonderful because it reduces everything to just the simple presence of pure being. And so all these other practices then kind of flow into that deep receptive dimension of pure contemplation that centering prayer on its own cultivates. So there's a there's sense that all these other practices flow out of the centering prayer practice and then feed them to help uh, to feed it again to help someone live in in the ordinary existence that we're here with in our worlds. Cool. All right. God. <laughs> I I brought this up in the beginning of our interview and um and we have sort of you've talked about God, um, but I, I suspect you're talking about it in a different way than most people might understand that idea. And I wondered if you could say a little bit about the difference between how you're talking about God, the sort of contemplative understanding, and how pe- most people understand what God is, because uh, I know from sitting in a lot of different Buddhist communities that many of the people there have a kind of reactivity to this word. And myself, I, I don't because I, ne- I didn't really grow up in a 
you know, in, in that situation. Although I did grow up in a Southern Baptist community, so there was a little bit of reactivity. <laughs> yeah, no, I, uh, it was a cha- challenging, but, um, you know, no, probably no different than any other kind of traditional culture where there's like real strong identity around a certain approach. Um, but anyway, yeah, could you talk a little bit about, about God and the, the different ways of understanding that, that word? Uh, yes, this is a, this is an important question for uh, someone who's a practitioner in a theistic tradition like Christianity, um, who or what God is. So, so one of the great early contemplative teachers in Christianity, Dionysius the Areopagite, had two important books. One book was called uh, I think it was called the uh, Divine Names, and in that book he he goes through all these great names. Uh, some scriptural and some that are there in the tradition for God. You know, for example, uh, mystery, love, uh, creator, king, uh, beloved, uh, uh, Christ, the anointed. And then in another of his great books, The Mystical Theology, uh, Dionysius the Areopagite goes into great detail and in kind of destroying all those names of God, saying that the reality cannot be named, the reality that he at some point calls it, cannot be named by any uh, descriptor or attribute. It's beyond all names, yet it manifests in life, in form, in names. And so this is really the heart of the Christian contemplative understanding, that in this tradition, there is this name, God, which points to a reality that cannot be named or limited by any name, and that this person, Christ, Jesus, uh, 2,000 years ago, um, helped to manifest some qualities of this mystery that cannot be named or, or limited to any name, uh, like compassion and love and sacrifice and uh, and surrender and and uh, service and forgiveness. Uh, and so beyond all those attributes or qualities that Jesus of Nazareth manifested, he also, for a Christian practitioner, embodied this mystery itself, and especially in his resurrected presence, as a living reality. You know, that was the reality that touched me when I was young. Uh, the mystery of love, which could not be, was not like any other love I had experienced. So, so God, who or what God is, I think always changes. In my 30 years as a Christian practitioner, my experience of God is always changing. I just use the term somewhat uh, inelegantly sometimes to point to or indicate a mystery that cannot be named. So I, I think it's actually rather tragic that some uh, more fundamentalist uh, parts of Christian uh, the Christian churches or Christian uh, understanding or teachers sometimes get so locked in on on the literal meaning, not only of Scripture, but the literal understanding of what God is. Uh, like the uh, cloud of unknowing says, God may well be loved, but not thought. Because if one gets locked into this literal understanding, either of Scripture or of God, a fundamentalist concrete understanding, then one's also reinforcing the subject-object way of relating in oneself. I am a firm, solid person, a self, 
if I can use that term here, <laughs> uh, relating to an object, either you know an idea, a concept, and that's exactly what uh, the Christian contemplative uh, path undermines. Uh, either the uh, experience of God as an object, because uh, over the path of centering prayer and the path of Christian transformation, God becomes lost as an object, outside oneself, any object, any thought, idea, or experience comes alive as the deep subject of one's experience. And then that whole subject-object way of thinking and relating and conceiving and perceiving collapses altogether in the transformation of consciousness that's alluded to in scripture, Christian scripture, when it says to be transformed by the renewal of your mind and to put on the mind of Christ. So the mind of Christ is not an intellectual mind. It's, it's, it's a mind that's not about dualistic thinking. It's a mind that arises in the moment out of the indwelling presence of God and that apprehends everything uh, more and more with the compassionate presence of God. Uh, perceiving God as the source of everything. So Thomas Keating, my spiritual father, has a nice little saying. He says, the first part of a contemplative journey for a Christian is to realize that there is an other. The second part is to become one with the other. And the third part is to realize that there is no other. So the first part is to realize that there is an other. There is a thou. There is a mystery for a Christian practitioner. And the mystery of life, the ground of one's being, invites one into relationship with itself, himself, herself. And on my journey, you know, uh, that's what happened at the beginning when I went through that first awakening or conversion experience to say yes to that mystery. And I think for practitioners of any trans uh, tradition, I think there's a way in which whatever their tradition is, it invites them into a deeper relationship with it. It may not be through this sense of God, but a commitment to the practice, to deep surrender to one's own teacher, guru, and the lineage and the tradition. There's some relationship with there and that's evoked. So in the Christian path, the first task is to realize that there is an other, a thou, and to enter into relationship with it. And the second is to become one with it. So it's no longer an object. It's no longer outside oneself. And the third is to realize that there is no other. In other words, there is nothing that's separate from God. That's a wisdom saying. Actually, it cannot be fully articulated or described, Thomas Keating's wisdom saying. But it points to, again, this what this mystery of God is. It's, it's not something that can be locked into a box, into an idea. So people, again, I wasn't raised a Christian, but people who are raised with a Christian um, religious background, uh, a background that lacks the, uh, the awareness of the Christian contemplative dimension, and maybe substitutes that with more of a fundamentalist or evangelical kind of understanding. Um, it's very, un I, I, I totally understand why they would react against the word God, <laughs> because uh, that God, a God of judgment perhaps, a God of fear, an old man in the sky, um, is not the kind of God that I understand either. 
the God that I understand and relate to as a Christian practitioner is a God of that is ever-changing and invites the transformation in me uh, as I surrender and move into the relationship with that mystery uh, and open up to its compassionate presence. A presence that's not about the sentiment of love either. John of the Cross, another great Christian teacher, uh, said that God is a living flame of love that burns and transforms. A living flame of love, which is a great image. Mm. You know, it, again, God is not limited to that image. <laughs> but when John talks about the living flame of love, he, he says that the love, the love that is God's living flame burns and destroys every obstacle to being at one with it at every moment of time. And the obstacle is one's own attachments, ideas, resistance to emotion, um, and uh, the contracted sense of self that uh, is not at, in union with uh, all, of, all of life and everyone else. So, so my greatest experience after having done a good deal of retreat practice in, in those early years was to find God awakening or the divine awakening in more and more of my existence. So um, that was kind of brought to a fullness last year when... Um, when uh, my uh, beloved uh, Donna, my wife, who, well, we got married. Um, and that was an experience of the divine for me. I experienced God breaking forth in her presence uh, in every existence of my life. I'm saying this because she's here in the room with us. <laughs> and uh, it's no longer a solitary path for me. You know, it's the path of of divine relationship in all things that's mediated by more and more of life uh, for me. And something that I kind of bow down in humility before because I find myself very... Uh, very imperfect before this mystery of life and love. But God is in that too, <laughs> I think. Or that's in God too. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice 
or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.